hello. Welcome to Biblically Speaking. My name is Cassian Bellino, and I'm your host. In this podcast, we talk about the Bible in simple terms with experts, PhDs, and scholarly theologians to make understanding God easier. These conversations have transformed my relationship with Christ and understanding of religion. Now, I'm sharing these recorded conversations with you. On this podcast, we talk about the facts, the history, and the translations to make the Bible make sense so we can get to know God our Creator better. Hello, hello, everybody. You are listening to Biblically Speaking. I'm your host, uh, Cassie Bellino, and uh, I just wanted to welcome everybody here that's listening to this episode. Uh, we took a little bit of a break over the Thanksgiving break and no doubt going to probably take a break over the next holidays, but I'm trying to squeeze in as many episodes as I can as I you know, get a hold of professors and PhDs and trying to get people to get scheduled on my um, on my calendar in the midst of this crazy holiday time. So I just appreciate everybody being patient. And even though there was a gap that you guys came back and kept listening, for those of you that are new to the podcast, and maybe this is your first ever episode, I, um, I wanted to welcome you and say thank you for listening in. Biblically Speaking was born out of me trying to just really understand God and the Bible on a more personal note. And the way I wanted to do that was by learning the things that church couldn't teach me. And I wanted to personalize Jesus and imagine how he might be operating if he were to exist and be present. Obviously, he does exist, but be present in 2023 the way he was present during Jesus's living time. So I am curious and I am confused. And in order to get my questions answered, I don't sit down with, you know, church leaders per se, not, I mean, not always, but I target the PhDs and the theologian experts that can give me the historical, socioeconomic and political context of these Bible verses. And it's not really to disprove or prove the verses. I mean, I'm already coming into here believing that they're true, but it really is to add much more enrichment to the verses by understanding how, why, when, what vibe these verses were set in. Um, Things make much more sense when you understand why they were being said rather than just taking them for face value. And in conversations such as the one today, I sit down with Dr. James Sedlicek. And Dr. James Sedlicek is a teacher. He's got his BA at God's Bible School and College. He's got his master's at Cincinnati Christian University, who my friend Logan Hauer, shout out to Logan, uh, referred him to me. So thank you so much for thinking of me when you uh, met an expert. If anybody else has somebody that they think would be perfect for letting me drill with questions, have, uh, have no fear. Slide into my DMs and let me know. I'd be happy to connect with them. Uh, Dr. Sedlicek also has a PhD with the Nazarene Theological College, and the goals of today's call are to understand translations. So we had a first version of the Bible. How did we get that data? Was it God breathed? Did God give it to somebody in a dream? Where did it come from? Were people just writing down notes as they interacted with Jesus? We explore that. 
And then there's translations. Why are there multiple translations? At what point, who was doing the translations? How can we be sure that these translations are, you know, on point as to what actually happened? You know, if if the Bible has been translated multiple times, are we... uh, are we understanding, you know, the original text thoroughly? We explore that. And then my most favorite topic that we dive into are the most common Bible verses that we interact with. We hang on our fridge. We get tattooed. Are there Bible verses that maybe were translated into English that kind of miss the point of the original text? Are we fully understanding the Bible verses in their original form? Since he is literally an expert in all these topics, James provides a comprehensive and extensive explanation uh, on translations, how they're developed, and what the original text is trying to say. So you guys are in for a real treat. This was probably one of the longest podcasts we're going to have just because there's so much to say, and yet we still did not say all of it. So um, he's definitely going to be back. I mean, I had so much fun just learning so much about him and what he does, and through that, finding more value in the Bible. So thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoy. Okay. Hello. Hello, James. How are you? Good, Cassian. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks nice. so much for coming on the podcast. I, uh, I'm really excited to talk about our, our topic today about translations. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited about this as well. I've been thinking about uh, the, the original languages and translation and even interpretation issues for quite some time. Okay. Yeah. And you're, you're a professor. Um, I'd love to just let you introduce yourself and the work that you're doing currently in Ohio. Yes. So I'm a professor of biblical languages. I teach courses at several institutions right now. I'm under contract for an institution called Israel Institute of Biblical Studies. And for them, I teach Hebrew and Greek. I'm also on contract um, to teach Greek at a school called God's Bible School and College, and I'm teaching master's level courses there. Um, My background is in both Hebrew and Greek, and along with that, uh, the, the different languages that help us understand something about rare words in Greek and Hebrew. Wow. Would you say that you're fluent in Greek and Hebrew then? We define fluency of ancient languages a little differently than how modern languages uh, get defined as fluent. For example, in a modern language, you're fluent if you can carry on a conversation and read um, the most recent novels produced in that in that language. Not technical books, but, you know, a regular uh, reading level. For biblical languages, fluency is defined as, uh, as being able to read the text and interpret their meaning. Being able to speak and hear someone else speak in the ancient language is not really tested uh, for the most part. There are a few institutions that work on something called immersion uh, in biblical languages that attempt this. But uh, generally, fluency is described as being able to read and interpret, and I do that. Got it. Got it. So I shouldn't call you when I need to order food in Greece, um, but definitely to interpret the original text of the Bible. I can get by. I can get by, but I'm, I wouldn't consider myself fluent in modern Greek at all. I can read some. I can speak some, but it's it's slow. Okay. Got it. And do you have any areas of specific interest when it comes to translations of the Bible? Like any personal favorites when it comes to like books of the Bible or just things that you 
think are the most profound things to translate and just more thorough meaning when you do translate it. I get excited sometimes. I, I wouldn't say there's a particular place in the Bible that I like to translate from. I like to translate any of it that I happen to be reading for whatever reason. If, if I feel like reading something uh, in, in the Bible, I might look at it in English first. I might not. I might go straight to the Greek or Hebrew first and, and read it there. And then if something sparks my interest, then I'll do research in that area. Got but, it. Uh, translating, um, the things that I notice when I'm reading uh, that, that sparks my interest is when I see something I know isn't the, the typical, most common way to express an idea. And I've been reading enough for enough years that I can spot these things. And when, when, when you see something that's unusual, that's when you jump and see how, how did the English translations handle that? And then you see them all over the place, and then you know why it was a it was a place that was a little more challenging to translate, but uh, it it also sometimes is a center of a theological debate, and those are my favorites. Got it, got it. So there's sometimes translations where what it may be if it's in Greek, it means something completely different, but if it's in Hebrew, it means something else. Well, in what the ones I'm thinking of are the ones that are in Greek, but in their English versions. They mean a variety of different things instead of the same thing. Uh, uh, one, one verse that comes to mind is Romans 5.12. When we read how our English Bibles handle that one, um, they're all over the place, uh, especially if you take a look at older and newer Bibles. If you look at the latest five translations off the shelf, they're, they're almost saying the same thing. But if you look at the history of the English Bible, go back 400 years and work your way forward through a lot of translations, you can see that the translators were making a lot of different choices there. And uh, the key word, I would say, in, in Romans 5.12 is uh, the, the one just before all sinned at the end of the line. Um, I, can, I can read that verse if you like. Please. In, in, um, so I'll, I'll read it out of... Uh, Let's read it out of the ESV. That's a fairly recent translation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because, and that's the key word I want you to think about, because all sinned. It almost reads like there's a cause and effect going on here yeah. in, in this verse. And if you look at your latest three English translations, they all say that. Uh, in fact, there's probably half of all English translations that say because there. If you look at some older translations, uh, in so much that all sinned, in whom all sinned, in who all sinned, for that all sinned. And that's probably the clumsiest one. But you know that the translators are wrestling with something if they put a clumsy construction in there that doesn't sound very smooth in English. They don't want to go to cause. They don't want to go to in whom, but they can't decide what to do. And um, that that was the King James that went with for that all have sin, which is a really odd construction, even in Shakespeare's day, um, which was the time that was that was translated. What the issue is, is because is normally written a completely different way in Greek. It's not written the way the Greek is here. We have a little preposition there that's pronounced F but it's an adaptation of epi, 
and epi normally means on or upon. So neither one of those translations sounded like on or upon. Because mm -hmm. doesn't sound like on or upon, and neither does in whom. And so it, it's one of those things that once you see the phrase that's there in Greek, it's like, well, I can see why the translators are going different ways, but none of them landed on the most natural reading of that preposition. The, the most natural reading for that preposition is to say on the basis of which. In other words, there's just a pattern here. Human beings sin on the same pattern that Adam sinned. It's not that Adam's sin caused people to sin, and it's not that some other force that Adam brings in caused people to sin. People just simply sin on the same pattern that Adam did. I'm so glad you spelled that out because I was trying to remember all of the translations and find the connection. But yeah, I mean, I definitely grew up thinking, you know, because Adam and Eve sinned, that's why we sin. They kind of set the precedent. They set the standard. But that is way more humanizing for the Bible to say, listen, they were human too. You're human too. It's what's going to happen. You guys are very sinful creatures. And I think if we just read that text naturally and let the words that are there do the speaking rather than theological concerns, which is where I think our translators have gone. They've, they've reached out to theological concerns about original sin. And these original sin debates get very, very particular at times on exactly how did it go from Adam to us. And a lot of times this verse is the key text. And we're looking at this epi preposition that is actually simple to translate, but none of our English translations translate it the simple way. On the basis wow. of which we all say, yeah. it's actually natural read and it actually flows naturally here with the, with what Paul's doing in, in, in Romans 5. This what do you mean by theological concerns? Are you saying that when people translated the Bible, they wanted to, I want to say a stick to an agenda or is that what you're trying to allude to here that people just didn't want to make any presumptions beyond what they're i don't know i don't want to say anything that might like be assuming but cool. what do you mean by concerns here here's the the english translation doesn't happen in a vacuum right it happens in the middle of the protestant reformation mm -hmm. during phases of it different english translations that come out are in different phases of the Protestant Reformation. So there's these debates that are going on that are forming the way that they're reading the Greek text. And now right. some of these debates go all the way back to Augustine. So Augustine was a church father, lived in and around the year 400, a famous, a famous writer, famous theologian. But he also had some things to say about Romans 5.12 that I think have been impacting a later generation's understanding of that phrase. And he was a bishop that lived in what we think of as Carthage. Um, it was the, the Carthaginian empire that was now part of the Roman empire. That's where he was from. I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. Sure, no worries. Uh, modern day Tunisia, a North African shoreline. It's Got the it. closest part of Africa to Sicily. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was a time period, or that was more location, or that was like um, a ruling era? Carthage is a, is a place. It was the place that Tunisia used to be called. And then oh, um, in, inside uh, that, the period of the 400, 
was the time Augustine lived. That's about the same period that the New Testament canonization was taking place. So he, he is in the debates on that as it's forming. So he's one of the guys that's there then when that happens. Right. I mean, it makes perfectly good sense why, you know, at the time period at which the Bible was translated, the current group thought of that time period would be definitely inserted within those translations and just the directions that it takes. Can we go back to the written, you know, the, the God breathed word, and then to the first writing of the Bible on, you know, paper or a tablet, you know, carved into stone. And then from there, the translation, just historically speaking, how did that process go? You know, who was designated to begin writing it? And then who was decided to begin translating it? Because that's a huge role that can't just be any Joe Schmo. Right. So um, the first person that we know of that's actually writing scripture down is Moses. And he lived, oh, 3,500 years ago. Okay. And he was writing on papyrus or like tablet or he had like a slave taking notes like how did that probably go we don't know we do know that some things got wrote on stone so scratched into stones like the ten commandments for example but other things were written down that we weren't told exactly how they're written down but we can surmise that desert antelope hide was probably what they wrote on and they probably used an ink for most writing yeah, that that was at least traditionally what we know happens later. But in actually Moses's day, we're a little fuzzy on the details of when he wrote. The only thing we know is that he wrote five books and uh, they came down through history as uh, five individual scrolls and sometimes as one combined scroll that we call the Torah scroll. Um, so it. that that is the way the first writing took place. Now, when he writes, though, only four of the five books happen in his lifetime. The first book is way before his time period. So Hmm. he's he's going back to recount a lot of things that took place uh, before he was alive, before the kingdom that he's a part of was a kingdom. Um, And so it, it has always raised conjectures as to where did he get his footnotes from? Because we don't know, we're not told, and there's never a, a statement that, oh, by the way, Moses got it from here. And another assumption that we, we sometimes make is that, oh, a voice out of heaven just said the words and he wrote them down, but it never says that either. There are places in the Bible where it says God spoke and the prophet wrote, but we don't get that for Genesis when Moses writes. And one of the things I always tried to emphasize when I was teaching uh, uh, intro to Bible or uh, intro to uh, Scripture, uh, that God got his message down to mankind a, a, a wide range of ways. It wasn't just one standard way. So somebody heard a voice saying, write this down, they wrote it down. Somebody else had a dream, woke up and said, well, that was divine. I better write that down. Somebody else lived a chunk of life, and then they reflected on it and said, wait a minute, God's hand was at work in my life. I better write this down. Yeah, do you think, like, just thinking about the Gospels, do you think, like, 
John and all of them were hanging out with Jesus and then also scribbling down notes at the same time? Or do you think they lived their full life and then looked back and started writing things down? That's a good question. And when we get to the four Gospels, we have uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was the tax collector that was one of Jesus's disciples. Um, He was located around Tyre, Sidon area. It's a north of, uh, it's basically on the coast of Lebanon. Uh, It was part of the old Phoenician. It was the old Phoenician capital. It was no longer an empire, but that was their capital city. That's where he was found. A lot of the, the other disciples of Jesus were found in the fishing industry on Lake Gennesaret. Um, that was their place where they did fishing. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Nathaniel, and several others. We don't know the precise location of all of his disciples, but Mark is uh, kind of like not one of them. So who who is he and uh, uh, why did he write? Well, in the church fathers, we find a tradition that it was Peter's voice but Mark was writing it down for Peter. So, and it was written before Peter dies. So it makes sense that it's Peter's words, but Mark's uh, penmanship. Why do you think Mark wrote about Peter thing. and not himself? Well, he wrote the gospel that Peter wanted written. That's uh, so Mark probably wasn't in contact with Jesus, like personally, mm-hmm. but Got he it. wanted to write a Peter's gospel for Peter. And, and so we probably should be calling it the Gospel of Peter instead of Mark, but it is Mark's handiwork. He wrote it, so we want to give credit to the author of the the words that are actually on the page, but um, it's probably a good thing that Mark wrote it, honestly. Peter was not a a good grammar guy. Uh, He had a lot of problems. Um, If you ever look at uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter in Greek, you'll see the difference in the style and the vocabulary, the grammar, and you'll realize that you're thankful that there was a scribe writing one of them. <laughs> Are you saying first Peter was written by Peter and second Peter was written by somebody else? It's um, the other way around, I think. Yeah. Second Peter's the rough one to read. Yeah. Got it. Got so it. it's probably a good thing that Mark wrote for him and probably why he wanted somebody like Mark to write it for him. He, okay. he, he, probably wasn't a strong person with Greek. Where he was okay. located, it wasn't necessary to know Greek. Um, so he was in an area that spoke Aramaic, uh, where some of Jesus's disciples were in an area that spoke Greek, like Matthew. Luke, on the other hand, would have not met Jesus, probably. Um, but in his day, he's concerned that there's a bunch of different accounts going out about Jesus that's causing confusion. So he's a journalist. He wants to get the record right and set into detail the the right chronology of events so that it can be understood as a comprehensive whole. Instead of of this story and this story butting heads and we don't know um, how to put them together or one story conflicts with another because we we think they're at the same time, but really they're a year apart, you know, and that kind of thing. So he, he tried to create a comprehensive understanding and probably his biggest contribution was personally interviewing Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he got the scoop on the before Jesus was born stories and the after Jesus died stories from Mary. 
Uh, what Wouldn't was it have like Jesus' disciples? Wouldn't have Jesus' disciples also gotten the scoop on that? Like, why did Luke get that? I think they could have. Um, they just they just don't in their gospels. They don't present Mary's perspective the way Luke does. Um, and so, Luke, as a journalist, he wanted to go. If you think about how modern journalism is done, it's similar. He wanted to go to the source. Uh, Jesus has gone to heaven now, so let me find the closest person to Jesus. Mary, she's still alive. Let's talk to Mary. And he he gets uh, some scoop on stuff that probably the other disciples know, but it wasn't what they witnessed. So they didn't write mm. it down. Luke Luke isn't trying to write what he witnessed. He's trying to write a, an orderly account of what several witnesses have seen, a comprehensive multi, multi-witness account. Oh my gosh, that is such good insight. I had no idea. So that's the only book written that way? Yeah, Luke's gospel is the only one in the New Testament written that way. Very um, interesting. Other philosophers would have written uh, similar things about the lives of other famous people. So in Greco-Roman literature, the life of so-and-so kind of stories, uh, they would do similar things. They would try to get to a close source, try to provide detail that wasn't available in other places because they want their version of the biography to be accepted so and useful, probably more so than acceptance. So when we think of Luke, he was a trained expert in something in his, in his world. Um, a highly trained expert who decided to create a more orderly account. What was disordered? When we look at the other Gospels, we don't necessarily find them disordered. But the order of events is different in Matthew, for example, than Luke. And it's caused a lot of commentators to wonder about this. But if we notice how Matthew groups the stories, he's grouping the stories of Jesus into five topics. He never says they're chronological. Whoa, so it's always on. been, an, we've, we've always read it with the assumption that chapter six happens after chapter five. And that's the Sermon on the Mount, so they probably do. But like chapter eight happens after seven or chapter 13 happens after six. And we can't make that assumption. Um, the Matthew tends to have a five, five-fold pattern uh, where he groups all of his thoughts about Jesus's ministry. And those are identical. They match up very neatly with the five books of Moses. We mentioned Moses earlier. Matthew is trying to pattern Jesus as a new Moses. And so these five sections merge. And if we're not paying attention to those patterns, then we, we misread sometimes the flow in Matthew. And we, we say wrong things about why Matthew's different than Luke. Uh, they're not different because... One of them had the facts and the other one has all its facts mixed up. It, they're different because Matthew groups the stories of Jesus according to five themes and Luke puts them in chronological order. This is insane. It's so many things that are going on right now because there is, you know, the people that experience Jesus in real life, writing down their experience or covering his story. And then there is the people that translated it according to kind of their socio-political time period, you know, the way that they translated it for St. Augustine versus if they translated it today in President Biden's world, you know, it's going to be a completely different uh, path, I want to say. Um, and then there is just the multiple translations and the way that it's getting interpreted in different religions and different types of Christianity, not religions, but 
Protestant versus, you know, non-denominational or Catholic. So all of these factors are so interesting because they all come down to, you know, how do you experience Christ? Um, the question that I had earlier, that was just my own comment. The question that I had earlier was, do you, the the scrolls found in the cave? Oh, yes. Yeah, Where does that so, come into play here? Yes, yes. So the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Um, found in the Qumran area, pretty near where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, pretty near where the Israelites crossed over from the wilderness into the Canaan land, the, the big crossing over under Joshua. So both of those events take place at, at the same spot. And I don't think it's accidental that Jesus' baptism is in that same spot. Um, a lot of times, this is something I'll probably say more than once, a lot of times our New Testament uh, experts have only been reading New Testament. And, and they haven't looked at the Old Testament to see how they're connected. Hmm. And so when Jesus is doing things in the New Testament, they often have something that they're parallel to in the in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and, and these are the things that I like to bring out with the Jewishness of the New Testament and the things that your typical Western mindset on the New Testament overlooks or misses. Uh, yeah, completely. let's jump into it. So uh, thinking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, they were a big find. Um, a shepherd boy throws a rock in a cave and hears something shatter, decides to see what it is, comes across and finds the, uh, the first scroll that would later become called the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was more than one cave uh, there. Uh, once, once people realized that there's more of these things in the caves, uh, and they didn't want these things to just end up in a marketplace somewhere uh, being sold as a, a trinket. They wanted them to be preserved and studied and, and, and not dissected, you know, cut into pieces and sold as trinkets for your jewelry or something, you know. And yeah. so they scholars went and tried to recover these things, uh, preserve them to the best they knew how. The earliest people there uh, didn't use the best methods. Uh, for, for example, a one manuscript I'm aware of was held together with scotch tape. Uh, they put scotch tape on it to hold the pieces together, and that actually ruined later the ink that was under the scotch tape. But uh, it, it was a growing field. How to preserve ancient texts that are fragile uh, mm. grew from the 1950s to uh, what we now see. Like when I went over to the Manchester uh, Library Scriptorium, uh, things are under vacuum sealed glass and you've got to wear white gloves. You can't use certain kinds of light around the manuscripts. And that would be standard for any, any place that's storing old manuscripts. I, I think in the Smithsonian, we also have some old manuscripts as well that are preserved there. I think University of Michigan also has some. Uh, there's a lot in Jerusalem. There's a lot in Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and there's various places that, that have old manuscripts. But these Dead Sea Scrolls are interesting because we found some things in Hebrew, some things in Greek, some things in Aramaic. And it gave us a picture of what's been happening to the text um, in different points of time. For example, when, when we translate today the Hebrew Bible into English, for example, we use something called, uh, well, most translation committees are going to use the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, and that's produced in Tübingen, Germany. 
it's it's a it's the Bible in Hebrew based on the what we call the Masoretic text. The oldest uh, it's just a name for the Masoretic. It's the name for the Hebrew scrolls that are actually being used. It's the for for a, a typical thing a, a way to say it is uh, this is what the Jewish communities received in their Jewish communities as they were scattered around the world. This is what they what came to them in their hands. Okay. Um, the oldest manuscripts we can find that are definitely what we would call proto-Masoretic uh, text or proto-those-received texts that are in these communities are not extremely old. A thousand, A.D. a thousand or A.D. 900 is the oldest ones. And these are way after the time of the New Testament. Well, and that's a little concerning because it's like, how do we know that for the previous thousand years, the text was always the same? That's that was an issue. No, uh, that's a great point. And a lot of a lot of people conjectured and, and, and debated uh, a few things about about the text. And um, we might have time to this on this call. I don't know. But there's there's one that I I, I discovered that I wouldn't mind sharing in the text of Samuel. Uh, Absolutely. But, yeah. Uh, but. These, the the search was to find older, if possible, older Hebrew manuscripts, and we had Greek ones of the Old Testament that were older. So, for example, talking about translation, about a hundred, two hundred years before Christ, uh, the scribes, the Jewish scribes in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, were commissioned by the Ptolemy king, one of the four breakaway uh, Greek empires when the Alexander the Great's empire went four ways. So under that king, he commissioned the Jewish scribes to translate the Jewish Hebrew Bible into Greek. This was about 200 years or maybe a little more before Jesus's birth. And then this fresh translation, and for the lack of a better term, we'll call it the Septuagint. That's the term we call it today. They probably did not call it that back in their day. Uh, but the Septuagint. What is a Septuagint? <laughs> a Septuagint is, it means the number 70 in Greek. It's just like calling it the 70 in English if we want to do So this it. is like the 70th version or why did they say 70 of all the numbers? Yeah. So the tradition has it that when the Torah uh, scroll, that's, that's Moses's first five books, was being translated, the committee of translators was 70. 70 people. 70 people worked on it. And how were those 70 chosen? They were already Jewish Torah scribes. That, that was their expertise. They were fluent in Greek, fluent in Hebrew, and they would be the kind of person that if you saw them in the marketplace and you had plenty of time and you paid them enough money, uh, they could produce for you a manuscript of the Torah from memory. Oh, yeah. oh my yeah. gosh. This was during Egyptian times under King Ptolemy. Yes, in the Egyptian sphere of uh, the world and under the, the Ptolemies, the, the Greek Before Ptolemies. Before Jesus was born. Yeah, yeah. Wow. A couple hundred years before. We don't have an exact date. We have some conjectures about that date that are all landing somewhere around 200, 250, something okay. like that. 
And the, the other thing to, is, I, is they didn't stop there. They, they translated the Torah, and then they kept going and translated the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And we don't know how many people worked on the rest. But it, the, the, the whole thing is still called the Septuagint because the 70 translated the Torah. That's why the name. Got it. When going back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found multiple scripts in multiple <laughs> languages. What does that suggest? That suggests that the community was already doing translating work, making mm -hmm. sure that they could translate the Hebrew text into Greek and into Aramaic for people that didn't speak Hebrew. So you're saying the script, the scrolls were all the same text, just different translations? Or are you saying that, because I guess I assumed that one scroll was written by Peter and another was written by Moses, and we just happened to stumble upon the original text. But that doesn't sound like that's correct. These would be um, all scrolls that were um, copied from other texts that this community kept. Wow. So think about a manuscript collector culture who collects manuscripts from all over, and they want to make sure they have a copy in their scriptorium of every manuscript that's out there. And then they may make copies for people who need it too. But they were... They were involved in some translation work, some what I would call that collector mode, just uh, trying to preserve scripts. Okay, there's, so we found somebody's stash, essentially. Yeah, we found, we found a community's or maybe more than one community's stash. There's also some thought that when the Jewish-Roman War happens in 66 to 73, that a lot of people would have been fleeing the destruction of that period they may have also contributed scrolls into these collections. But we don't know for a fact on any one scroll if that was the case. But you would it, never it's think that a if, possible thing. Yeah, you'd never think if you were fleeing war, the first thing you would do was to preserve some paper. You know what I mean? Like that just shows the value of that at that time, that you're basically seeking asylum and your first thought is, I need to preserve not, you know, some of my artifacts or, you know, my family heritage, but the written word of God that is so important to me right now. And that's true. And one of the big finds in the Dead Sea Scrolls was something we call the Great Scroll of Isaiah. And it flows from from what, what we can read on it. There's a couple of places where you, you it's got some damage, but it's still fairly complete. I would say it's the most complete scroll uh, from that time period, and it matches the Masoretic text of the 900s. So now we see a document that's 1,100 years older than what we thought was our oldest one that's agreeing with it in, in most respects. Whoa. Yeah, that was Whoa. the big find. Now, for Isaiah, that's been great. What, yeah, it's, the same story can't be said of all books, but uh, for Isaiah, that's great. For Torah, that's great. We found Torah copies that agree with the Masoretic text. For some books, we find three different traditions of Hebrew text. They're not the same text on the Hebrew. I'm not talking about Aramaic translations or Greek translations. I'm talking about the actual Hebrew manuscript. Uh, and so the scholars that have looked at the manuscripts that are different have grouped them and, and thought about three basic text families for them. Uh, Babylon, 
for example, is uh, the, the place of the Judah kingdom's exile, and, and then they return later. Uh, some of these are called Babylonian texts, and, and the Babylonian text tradition matches what we think of as the Proto-Masoretic text, the one that is received into the Jewish communities of the diaspora. But there's two other text families that are not on that track. They're not from the Babylonian exile and back. Because you have to remember, when, when a nation goes through hardship and people are carried off and exiles happen, not everybody travels on the same path. Some people scatter ahead of the invasion. Other people are still around after the invasion's over and wondering what to do. They just go move somewhere comfortable. Right. So you had a bunch that are carried into Babylon that later return and rebuild. You also have some that just scattered north to wherever they could find a place. And then you had some that went down to Egypt. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that the Septuagint was translated in Egypt. Uh, the communities of Jews that would have went into Egypt would have been the forerunners of the ones who later do the translation into Greek. And in some of these Hebrew texts, we call them the Alexandrian family of Hebrew texts because those have a bunch of similarity. And it's amazing in places where the Greek Septuagint reads a little bit differently than our standard Hebrew Bible does, it matches the Alexandrian Hebrew texts rather than the Babylonian ones. And this is kind of an eye-opener kind of thing in the last uh, 40, 50 years. Uh, it's like, oh, there's more than one Hebrew text tradition, and the Greek Septuagint Bible in books outside of Torah and Isaiah used a different text tradition than what is now in the Masoretic Bible. Uh, really interesting. That all translators use. Like if you're translating the, the newest English Bible, you're going to translate from the Masoretic text on the Hebrew text. But the Septuagint, in certain books, isn't coming from that text tradition. It's coming from an Alexandrian Hebrew text tradition that we don't always have a full picture of. We just have some scraps, some books here and there, so, for example, one of the test cases is Samuel. Uh, Samuel is a book that its Hebrew text tradition, the Babylonian version of, of, of the text, is notoriously full of problems. And I don't mean uh, theological problems. I mean, the, the, the rabbis have all been saying over the years that something happened to that scroll. When it went into Babylon and came out, there was damage on it. And the reason they're saying that is because there's so many confusing things for the copyists later to copy it, that they think it's this, and then the next copier thinks it's that, and then you end up with two things that are different. And that was always confusing the rabbis. So Samuel's got some issues like that. So I want to read uh, two verses, one in Samuel and one in Chronicles, and this was listed for years on skeptics, uh, Bible skeptics websites, uh, and before that in books, uh, hard questions that biblical scholars can't answer kind of books, you know, those kind of things. Kind of like the Reddit for scholars reading the Bible? Kind of the Reddit for uh, anyone wanting to say, oh, I got you with this one, and you oh, can't figure cool. this one out. This will stump you. That sort of thing. I just, I just want to make one note before you jump into that verse, because I want yeah. to hear it, but it made a lot of sense to me when you just said, like, when people fled war, they're not yeah. going on the same bus. You know, they're not no. being shuttled out together. Some people left early. Some people left last. 
and for them to end up in different places while still recounting the same event just a little bit differently makes complete sense, you know, if you were to be in those shoes. But I don't think it excuses the validity and the <laughs> the occurrence of the event. I think a lot of people take, I think, uh, you know, just in the conversations I've had, people say, you know, one of their biggest things is like, look, there's contradictions. There's been so many translations. How can you trust the Bible? I feel like we hear that pretty often in the biblical debates. But at the end of the day, it's not a malicious intent to not be aligned. It's not somebody reading the Bible or translating the Bible and intentionally making up something to make it different than what actually happened. It's just mm -hmm. in reality, the story is told by people who experience the same event differently. Yes. Yeah, so especially when you got multiple eyewitnesses on the same event, um, yeah. they're going to see it different. Um, it, uh, in basic psychology, we learn that there are 16 personality traits or there's four types, uh, if you want to think of types, but we've all been exposed to a little bit different version of it in intro to psychology, but, um, or even in high school, I think it's a common thing now to, to take psychology in high school, but there's, everybody's different and no two people looking at the same thing are impacted by the same details. Yeah. So if Mark writes a detail that John leaves out, John writes a detail that Mark leaves out. It's not because they're bad observers. It's because they're different people. And exactly. uh, so yes. I think, I think that's a important point to to say yes now let's jump into the word because i have so many more verses i want to run through with you yeah so i'm going to read second samuel 21 19 and follow it up with first chronicles 25 20 verse 5 so second samuel 21 19 and there was i'm going to read it from the new american standard just because that's the one that's on my screen and okay. there was a war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair Origim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So when you read this in Samuel, immediately you're scratching your head. Because didn't David kill him four chapters earlier? David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Now we got Elhanan killing Goliath. Now this is the this is sort of the uh, the wow moment when we go to Chronicles. It's telling the same story. Okay, that's the first thing we have to realize. Chronicles twenty is telling the same story as as uh, uh, the Second Samuel twenty one was doing. And there was again a war with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jair, and that particular edition left off the place where Jair was from, but struck down Lachmi the brother of Goliath the Gittite the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. All of the same details, but we got a different identity for the one who died. It's not Goliath, mm. it's Goliath's brother. And it's mm. clear that Goliath is a name in First Chronicles because Lachmi is his brother. If it's just a class noun, class nouns don't have brothers. Names of people have brothers. Um, and so in biblical commentaries, this thing was tossed around as Oh, no, one of these books is in error. Which one? Mm -hmm. The second thing that was tossed around, maybe Goliath isn't a person's name. Maybe it's a class of a giant or something. And, and there's a lot mm. of Bible dictionaries and commentaries that pretty much made up a class noun out of Goliath because they wanted that to be a class noun to prevent this problem. Because there's more than one Goliath here. It's just a class noun after all. Well, 
when we start looking at these things, this is the book that when we look in the Dead Sea Scrolls has three text traditions. And we have 4Q Sam A as one manuscript, 4Q Sam B, and 4Q Sam C. They are not from the same Hebrew tradition. They are from different Hebrew traditions. And one of the things that we see is that the Greek Bible seems to agree with one of them. What I mean by agree, it, it has a, a, an easy-to-see connection between the translation into Greek and what you're seeing in the Hebrew. Okay. And then the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible agrees more with a different one. So it seems like the Greek Bible is not reading the same one that landed in the Masoretic tradition. And so some of our Bibles actually did translate from the Greek instead of the Hebrew for the book of Samuel. And uh, uh, when they do, they don't say uh, Goliath, they say the brother of Goliath. I'm, going to I'm read seeing the, that right now with the NIV version. Uh-huh. So they caught it. Well, what is the thing well, that they're seeing? What is the, the piece that makes this puzzle fit together? When you, when you draw in Hebrew, um, I don't know if I have a, a writing ability on the screen here, but I can maybe do finger signs in the air. When you draw a Hebrew particle that stands in front of a direct object, it, it starts with an aleph, and it has a tav after it. Those two consonants uh, are, are called aleph and tav, and all it does is it marks direct objects. If you spell the word for brother, it uses the same two letters, it, except it's not tav, sorry, it's chet on the end. The only difference in shape between a chet and a tav is one tiny little foot at the bottom of one stroke of the letter. Think hmm. about the difference between uh, a capital I when it has just the straight line up and down and the capital I when you have the caps on the top and the bottom. Mm -hmm. Now imagine on that capital I, you don't have the top cap. You only have half of the bottom cap. Mm -hmm. So only pointed one way, like a miniature L sort of shape, right? Mm -hmm. Now, one letter has that, the other doesn't. It's a very, very small piece. And when we read the ancient rabbis on the text of Samuel, they mention two things, that the end of the scroll of Samuel was actually burned. Mm. And worms had eaten holes in the, in the parchment before oh. it came back from Babylon and was then copied. So if you've got a wormhole sitting exactly on that letter, you could easily mistake the letter for the other letter. And that would explain why we have both renderings in different Hebrew manuscripts. That's a very reasonable explanation. It's more reasonable than anything in print in the last hundred years. <laughs> but that makes sense. I mean, the wear and tear might cause you to mistake an I for an L, you know, or a you know, a B for an R, you know, if some portion of that letter has been eaten by a worm. Yes, it's just the little tail on the tip of the tav that would have to be eaten. That, yeah. Or all you need is a hole there, and you might think, oh, it should be a tav, not a chet. Right. And yeah. so some, one scribe thought it was a, uh, or a tav, and the other one thought it was a chet. And this, this produces a transmission error not a text error that was in the 
original writing, not a theological error, but a misreading just from copying from one generation to the next. And so how often do texts have to be recopied? If it's written on animal hide, probably about every hundred years, you've got to <laughs> recopy the thing. Or, it's, or you can't read it. You can't use it. It's going to start crumbling up in your fingers. If it's written on papyri, it's about 20. Whoa. It's a massive difference. And in the Hebrew text traditions, they generally used desert antelope. So it was a good leather. It was a good animal hide. You're only having to replace them about every three generations of people. Um, for New Testament texts, on the other hand, most of the earlier texts were written on papyrus, so they had to be recopied every 20 years just to maintain a copy at any given church or facility. Oh, my gosh. And it's one of the reasons we have so many New Testament manuscripts in the scrap bin of the ancient world that we can go find and put side by side with another one because they had to keep copying this thing in order to have a usable copy very, very oh frequently. God. This is so, so important. <laughs> The New Testament has more copies of it than any other ancient piece of literature. Uh, when we think about Homer's Iliad, for example, in Greek, there's only nine copies in manuscript form. Everything else is recent stuff that's been repeated on uh, printing press, right? It's, it's not right. a manuscript. Half of them are too late to matter in terms of us having any sense of what the original would have looked like. So some of them are, you know, thousands of years after Homer's, um, more, more than a thousand years after his lifespan. And then it's like, well, how can we be sure what his original text was? Well, you have many ancient attestations to his work. And so in the details that are given in the attestations, they still match the copy we have. So it's a reliable copy, but there's only nine of them total. In the New Testament, we've got thousands and thousands of them. Wow. And you have to say Homer's Iliad was a pretty important book. I was about to say, they clearly knew that the New Testament and these biblical works were, they needed to be preserved. Yes, and I think part of the fact is they had to be preserved often because of the type of material they were first written on. And secondly, every church wanted their own copy. So it's like mm. eventually you've got to copy it for those guys. Think about people doing church plants today. What if your first yeah. task as a church planner was to get your own copy of the Bible? Mm. That would have been a standard thing. At least get like, key books. Like you want Psalms first and you want uh, maybe the Gospels next. And get your, You're saying get your copy. If, I, if I started a church back in the day and I needed obviously some reading material for my congregation, my task number one was to begin transcribing the books of the Bible. So I had my yeah. own copy. Hiring a I feel like that would take my whole life. It takes a while, yes. Oh my God. How long would it? that typically take? I feel like that would take 100 years. I'm not an expert at fast writing. But I, when I was teaching high school, I, I gave myself a, a sort of a test. I wanted to know how long it takes to just write out the first chapter of Matthew, doing it the way an ancient scribe would do it, and having to roll the thing as I worked on it. It took incredibly longer than I thought it would, just to how get the first chapter of Matthew. It, I was into the project for weeks. 
And of course, I'm doing it in between other tasks. I'm trying not to write scribbly letters. I'm trying to make sure they, they look neat. And I could probably do that faster now, but I, I would have more practice writing uh, in Greek now than I did then. Um, so uh, in all of this takes time. For a scribe that was an expert, it would have taken a lot less time, but it yeah. still takes a lot of time. It, it, it's yeah. not, think about, well, the last time that you had to write by hand, pencil on paper, a 10-page research paper. Nobody's Ugh. done that in forever because we've all typed it or we even spoken into machines and they put our words on the screen. So I actually did that in high school. I hand wrote a paper. And it was probably the last time anybody would want a handwritten essay that of that size because typewriters were out. And when I finished high school, actually, I started using Microsoft Word. Um, so you have carpal tunnel from <laughs> uh, writing for so long. <laughs> Yeah, but my 10th grade composition paper was handwritten. It was not typed. It was handwritten uh, neatly. I had to rewrite it three times before I was happy with it. And I actually got oh graded gosh. on penmanship uh, as well as the paper. And that was that was a lot to sit down and force yeah. yourself to write neatly. Now, imagine a scribe who's going to make sure that lots of people can read this, not just one teacher. Yeah. So it's got to be very well done. So if you've got an artist who's going to do the lettering for you, you're going to pay a little bit for the artist to do yeah. that work. And that would be task number one for church planning in the ancient world, getting, a, oh getting your own script. Imagine almost completing a chapter and you have a little mess up with your ink. You got to start all over. That'd be horrible. And I wonder sometimes, this is one of the this is one of the things that we have to think about when we start examining piles of New Testament manuscripts. We found them where? Some of them in the trash heaps of the ancient world. How do we know that this one was one that was good and used in church? Or is this one somebody's mess up document that they threw away? Oh my gosh. It's it's one of the things you have to think about. If you've got obvious wear on the edges, the fingering, the fingering marks uh, on the edges, then they were used uh, a while. And the other thing that you also have to consider with, with manuscripts, too, is uh, who copied it and for what purpose. There were private collectors that wanted copies of things. Then there were churches that wanted copies of things. And, and so you use the documents like this to compare the other scraps from the junkyard or the trash heap with and say do they match it and it where Got are they it. different and why and and so you can you can build um you can build what's now called a dependency tree like this is the right. parent manuscript right. for this daughter and this son manuscript and you can build family trees of these things to some degree right. um this scribe must have been copying from this kind of manuscript and not that one and uh, you can do that because we have so many. Right. But when you only have yeah. nine, you can't do that. When you've got yeah. several thousands of these, you can do that. And so that's been the beneficial thing for textual criticism to be able to say, well, we can build a good map of how we got all these documents. And so mm -hmm. we can conjecture backwards with a high degree of accuracy as to what the original document looked like. Mm. Yeah, it's like detective work. I um yes. I want to spend some time going over some really common verses that 
my mom has hanging on a sign on top of her sink or, you know, people have tattooed. I have a tattoo of um, some, I have a prayer tattooed on me, but you know, some people have Bible verses tattooed on their bodies. I want to know, are some of them interpreted differently? You know, is the American, I'm sorry, the English translation of this verse, maybe not what we think it is. And uh, I have four verses for you. I actually have five because I want to start in Genesis. And this is one that you sent me. Um, And Genesis is fascinating to me. So I really want to talk about this is Genesis one, one through five in the beginning, God, and this is the NIV version. Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Where, does that, what's wrong with that? (laughs) Right. Um, So, a couple of things in the whole passage that are that are interesting to me is um, that very first word uh, in Hebrew is bereshit. Bereshit is a combination of several words that are smashed together the same way we do when we say the word don't. Um, it's a contraction of several words. Um, and the center word is head. Um, so the head of things, in the head of things, during the head of things, is sort of the meaning of it. And we probably don't translate it too badly. It, probably what we think it means is, is, is about right, because a head can be the source, it can be the origin, or it can be the first point in time on a timeline. So it makes sense in all of those meanings. But it's, it's somewhat challenging when, when, when people are beginning to translate uh, from Hebrew to English for practice. Uh, how, how do we go from head to in the beginning? That's like, because it, it gets translated in the beginning. Uh, but it, there's several ways to translate it. We could say uh, in the first moment instead of in the beginning, in the first time, in the first moment, we could do that, or in the head of things, God created the heaven and the earth. The other thing that stands out to me in, in verse 5, and, and, and for me that one's not a huge deal, though, is it in the beginning, in the head of things, whichever way we're translating, we probably still mean the same thing. So we're not, we're not, we're not. Really? I feel like that's such a point of like scientific contention of like, what was the beginning? What are we saying the moment, you know, like the Big Bang is when the bang happened? Or is this just like the upon us of God? Is that the beginning? And I think, I don't know, do you feel like there's any translations there that kind of lean into what, you know, just especially when it was translated in that time, is the head supposed to represent something that back in biblical times means something that we wouldn't recognize as the head today? The word head is used for so many relationships. Like in Hebrew, the head of the mountain is the top mountain. The head of the river is where the river starts. Um, so we get this. Another form of head is rishon, which means first, like first place. Uh, first place ribbon would be a rishon. So the, the word gets a lot of range of use like our English word head does. We can talk about a head as a source, as the top of something, like the head of the ladder. Uh, we can we can use the word head to talk about the beginnings of of a process. the The different things we could interpret from Genesis one, uh, 
would still be interpretation options, no matter which way we translated that for, for that word. I, I think because two big options come to mind. Is there a beginning of all things and then a beginning of creation that happened a long distance in time apart? Or is this all in an instant? And I don't think either translation of that actually has a, a much of a weight in that decision. Mm -hmm. the, because the issue there becomes, how do I know what the right referent for head is? It's not, it's not what does it mean? It's what is the right referent? What does it point mm -hmm. to? Okay. Okay. You had a point for later, uh, verse five. Yeah, in verse five, um, I, I got three translations up on my screen. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Mm -hmm. One day. Day one. And we do this when we're being dramatic. We, we would say there was evening, there was morning, day one, whoopee. And that's so exactly how it reads. So what do you think it's it suggesting with these, I guess, what's the takeaway? When, when people orally handed down stories from the ancient world to the next generation, they were usually orally told by, by a dramatic retelling of the event. And what we have recorded here in Genesis, in Hebrew, is Moses giving us the dramatic version as a storyteller would tell it. It's not a narrative summary. It's not just blah, 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 this detail, that detail, and now let's all fall asleep. It's, it's this happened, this happened. And then right when we pause long enough, whoa, this happened. You know, somebody's in front telling this to the kids. Uh, we, have, we have a recording of a dramatic telling of, of Genesis. And, and we should read it that way. We should read it as a dramatic telling of the story of God. But that doesn't negate it being a literal telling. No, no, it doesn't. But I think if we read it like the drama that it is, we begin to pick up some of these things as dramatic elements in the in the in the story, uh, as opposed to just okay, we've got six days of detail, one right after the other, in the same phraseology, one after the other. That's not how they are in Hebrew. Some of them are some summation stories or pieces. Some of them are dramatic pieces. It's almost as though the the teller of the creation account wants to wants to kind of summarize bits and then wow us with other pieces of detail. And and, and that goes missing in your in your typical English translation. The dramatic uh, so it's pieces are gone. Emphasis. Yeah. Emphasis. There you go. I, I like that word. Uh, there's emphasis on certain acts of God and certain results like when god says things are good that's a big deal and 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 we we sometimes pass over that but it's actually repeated after each day of creation he looks or, and things are good so uh repetition is one one way of giving emphasis but also the clause structure it's it's just a relative clause marker and good it's yeah. truncated it's choppy and when we get excited and we're telling something we don't put the smoothest of sentences out there. We, we, we make it a little choppy because we're trying to put pauses in here and have explosions of drama here. 
it reads that way to me. Okay. I'm going to keep going to uh, another verse. And this one is my favorite verse. Oh, gosh. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is my confirmation verse. I love this verse. It is hits home for me. So I'm a little scared that you're about to tell me it doesn't mean God has a plan for me and everything's going to work out for me. Because right, <laughs> this is the way that I read the verse. It's the NIV version, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I love that. That makes me feel so secure, so safe. Is that not what it's saying? Well, uh, when we when we look at this verse, and uh, there were, I think I highlighted three other one, two other ones that are similar to it. And and I grew up uh, with uh, the one in Philippians, um, Philippians four, I think it was, as a magnet, like a refrigerator magnet. But it was on my on the end of my bed when I was a kid. And it was, for I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Yes. I can be Superman. I can be Batman. Which were bad interpretations of that verse, right? We, we all know I can't be either of those. Superman <laughs> or Batman. I can do all things. Well, one of the things that occurs to me is that often in... We have two ways of reading the Bible that have come down through history. And both of them are valid. One of them is to understand the context of each verse and how it was historically understood by its first readers. How did a first century Jew understand Jesus' statements? What would be typical for them to understand by it? That, that's an important question to ask. And then what does the context around this verse say to it? But we have another way of reading scripture, too, that has come down through us to us in history, and that is what we call the devotional reading of the text. What can I read in in this verse here that will speak to me and give me shape, give me direction, give me uh, something that I can apply to me as I read it? Both of these are valid readings. So what what I think of when when I think of a verse like this one or the verse uh, that's in Philippians that I uh, cited, it these are verses that have a greater context, and when they were uttered, they had a meaning that was based on their context. And they, um, we should understand what that meaning was as we read it. That's important. And then I, I wouldn't say that it's not also true that we can read it as a devotional reading for our own benefit. So let's take a look at Jeremiah twenty nine twelve. They are different readings, though. That's the thing I want to emphasize. Jeremiah 29.10 is where I'll start. We probably could go back a yeah. little earlier and capture some more. Yeah, let's sandwich it. The verse before, the verse itself, and then the one after. So back in 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And who is the Lord talking to here? He's talking to Israel or the kingdom of Judah that's just been yanked off into captivity, or in Jeremiah's case here, about to be. It hasn't yet happened by by chapter 29. God is saying these things ahead of time. So when the 70 years are completed, that's the years of the captivity, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Judah. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then I will call upon, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. So what the issue is, is that for the most part, not, you can't say it's true for everyone. It's hard to even want to say it's true for most people, but it's true for the elite at least. And maybe they've affected most people in Judah. They aren't praying to the Lord. They're praying to idols and they're entrapped with several cycles of pitching God's message and picking up a different message and running with it. So this is their situation. And so people crying out at this moment are not heard because judgment's coming. But God is promising that he will restore, he will bring back, and then when they pray, he will hear. So uh, there's a there's a whole process that's involved there. And so in verse 11, the, the plans I have for you refer to God's statement to, to Judah to limit the captivity to 70 years. It's not going to go on forever. And then return them and restore them so that the, they will build a nation again. And they actually do that. Uh, when we when we read our Hebrew Bibles, we don't see the whole picture of it because we just see some rebuilding efforts. We see the temple get rebuilt, a lot of internal struggles and strifes. We don't see much more about that. But there's a book that was written between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament called the Book of the Maccabees. Uh, there's uh, book one and book two. And in the books of the Maccabees, it details them becoming a powerful nation again. Uh, during the time when uh, the, the two Greek uh, regions had gone to war and devastated the land. And in that vac power vacuum, they emerged powerful again for a while. And, and at that time, the kingdom is as large as Solomon's kingdom. But we don't read about it in the Hebrew Bible because it's in a different time period. It happens after the Hebrew Bible was written, before Jesus comes as a baby. So uh, the verse speaks to that. But yeah, what here's, would be here's the proper what I would say. To? What I would say for devotional reading, God always has, even when bad things are coming, God always has a way of using it to bring us back to the good end. So even though this is a bad thing that's going to happen, uh, there is a good thing at the end of it. Um, and, and restoration is, is there. So. If we read it alone as, as verse 11 by itself, we don't see the context of the Babylonian captivity and the, and the return. It's, it's kind of chopped off there, but it is giving us a picture of the character of God. And this is how God generally operates. So in, in this kind of thing, it's not a bad reading to say, well, God has plans for me too. So and sometimes we have to separate those two readings. Yeah, right. go ahead. And I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's not saying that you'll be all powerful like Superman. It's saying that when that hard time comes, God will give you the strength to get through it. Right? Yeah, and, and there's another one in 419 Philippians. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I shouldn't suffer financially then, right? Right. You're good to I go. Should, I shouldn't have because any Because the Bible troubles. said so, right? <laughs> and, and, and here's where I like to think of 
when we when we try to say what does this text mean, not only do we go a little broader and pick up the verses before and the verses after it to see what Paul is talking about there, but we also want to get our heads around the idea of what's in the whole of Scripture. Mm. Mm. It's a it's an important thing to not only look at this verse and say what does that say about God's care of me, but what does all of Scripture say from beginning to end about God's care of me? And and we build a comprehensive picture, then it's easier to interpret this verse within that framework than it is to only try to take a try to think of a good analogy. I, I, I love biology and I love microscopes. But if the only things you look at in a microscope is an amoeba or a, uh, a single-celled organism of some sort, which are easy to see in a microscope on a, with, a, with, with all the setup, it's very hard if you don't also see a dog or a cat to extrapolate that all of these things under a microscope, they're all different, yet they're all cells. And seeing the cells doesn't give us a picture of the being that dropped that cell onto the floor. So sometimes we have to step back from the microscope and see the whole picture and then go back to the microscope and then interpret the data. So here with Philippians, Paul has been addressing the the uh, the church at Philippi, that one of the things that we have to remember is this is the hometown of um, Alexander the Great. So this is a prestigious city in, in the history of the Greek world. I'll go back to verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs uh, once and again. They're like, uh, when, when things were happening bad in Jerusalem, they handed money to go help the the Jerusalem folks out. When things are happening bad in Corinth, they did the same thing. So this group is like that. And so Paul says, you met my needs. Um, and Paul is saying, I am glad you did that because you're going to grow in spiritual blessings because of it. That's what I seek for you. I wasn't actually seeking the gift, but I do seek your spiritual blessings. I have received your full payment and more. I am well supplied. They're giving gifts to him to, to help the ministry metaphorically was a fragrant offering up to God. And now we see the, the metaphor is related to sacrifices and incense. So their, their giving is parallel to a sacrifice. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. Now we see the bigger picture. They gave sacrificially to help God's mission grow. Now God will supply every one of their needs. There's something in there with that context that if we just take the verse and go with it, we, we miss what's happening. And yeah. uh, so that's, it makes a different sense in, in what Paul's talking about. If we, if we realize that this is on the tail end of just having received a bunch of stuff from these guys. And so that's, it makes a different sense in, in what Paul's talking about. If we, if we realize that this is on the tail end of just having received a bunch of stuff from these guys. And, how many times do we do this in speech? Uh, thank you for what you gave me. May God bless you. I wish that God blesses you now because you've given to me. It's very similar language here. It's it's not that different. We we sometimes miss it because the other thing that helps too is if we realize where we are in, in any Pauline letter. 
we're near the end of the letter. This is the closing. Yeah. This is where this verse is located. It's right yeah. in that tail end as he's summing up his thought and he's about to say goodbye. It makes sense that that's how he, he kind of, he's ending on a high note. Yeah. He's ending on a high note and he's, he's acting as an ambassador of God to say that God's going to give you stuff. Right. Yeah, as, right as he's you, closing off. When you see it in that light, it's not saying like a blanket statement of like, here's a rule. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's the context of, well, I've been given supplies. I've been given resources because of that. I'm very strengthened. That is because of God. Thank you for your service. Like it's a whole, it's just a part of the whole. And you have to see it as such versus just taking that blanket statement of like, see right here. He said, I would be good. But it's like, well, it was during a spare, very specific time that that was, it made sense to say something like, I um, I want to get into our last verse and then we can wrap okay. up. So I feel like this is one of the most popular, one of the biggest, and it's the Psalm, Psalm 23, the Psalm of David. And I have oh, yeah. an NIV version, but you suggested, or no, I sent this one to you and you, you specifically noted it as something that can be misinterpreted. So I didn't. Which area of this? I mean, do you want to read the whole thing, but give emphasis to the area that needs more clarification? Let's have you read it um, in okay. whatever version you like. Got it. Okay. I'll read it in NIV. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads, he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ah, oh, so sweet. My cup overflows, I love that. Yes. One of the things but, that comes to mind, go ahead, yeah. I was about to say, but is it not that sweet? Are we missing something here? Would we want a bunch of oil dumped on our heads? <laughs> that could be a real mess, couldn't it? And yet it's I, in when there. I, you see annoying. I see like a thumbprint of oil, <laughs> not like a mask. Uh, try a 16-ounce jar of olive oil. No. <laughs> That's the overflowing cup. <laughs> it's flowed over. Here we go, buddy. Lots of oil. Um, yeah, it's a... Uh, there's pieces of it that makes us scratch our heads. What's, what's going on here? It's obviously got a good tone to it. We like what it says. It sounds very caring. Someone's caring for us, right? And that is the point of the psalm. Uh, God cares for his sheep, us. But we often miss the metaphors in here because we don't realize that this is about sheep tending. Every line in here has something to do with the sheep tending of the ancient world. And David was a shepherd. He guarded sheep in his lifetime before he became a king. And so he's comparing God taking care of David the same way as David used to take care of the sheep. In, in the life of a sheep herder, uh, there's a season. There's a cycle about taking care of sheep. It's, it lasts about a year, and then you have to repeat the cycle again. In, in Israel and Africa, uh, several places do this about the same way. Uh, you have the rainy and the dry seasons. Here in the States, we have 
spring, summer, winter, and fall. Over there, it's the winter is not as pronounced, and the summer is a little less. It's different than here. When, when we think of summer, we think of thunderstorms, big storms, lots of rain. The spring and the fall, we think about pretty colors. Flowers blooming, leaves turning color. The winter, we think about snow and going out to play in the snow. So we have exciting things for all four of our seasons. And depending on where you live, you may have all four of those seasons or not. In, in the ancient Near East, even modern Near East, this is still true, uh, you have rainy and dry, rainy and dry. So when are your rainies? Your rainies are the spring and the fall. Your dries are the summer and the winter. But that's how they name it, the early rains and the late rains in the year. Uh, and so you, you see this phrase in the Bible a lot, uh, the early rains and the late rains, or just one of the two phrases. And sometimes that misses our attention. We don't know what that means. But uh, it's because that's the time of the year you get a lot of water during the spring rains and the fall rains. The summer, you don't. It's dry. Winter is also dry. So the sheep cycle is built around the weather cycle. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the attitude of the sheep. I've got a good shepherd guarding me. I won't have anything that I need. He's going to make sure I have what I need. When we think about this in a modern, secularized world, I shall not want means I'm going to get everything I want. All I want for Christmas is a hippopotamus. No, $15,000 out of the toy catalog. Why not? I shall not want. That's a bad interpretation because it isn't about we won't have desires, and it doesn't mean that all of our desires are fulfilled. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that the sheep won't have anything lacking in the things they need because the shepherd is good. All right. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. This is the early rains. This is the spring. The, the, he, he moves them out of the barn lots near the village and moves them up to where the grass is starting to grow in the spring. So he leads me, makes me lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. This, the waters are still at this time of the year. And so as the sheep moves, he keeps guiding the sheep to where it's green and where the waters are still. If you take the sheep past fast-moving water or dangerous water, they jump in and they drown, or they get ripped off downstream and, and their life is at risk. So you, the shepherd has to know where the wadis are and which thing is flooding and when, and make sure sometimes the shepherd leaves the sheep with other shepherds and goes on ahead and scouts out the path and then comes back to make sure that he's leading the sheep to good grass and good water that won't harm the sheep. Bad water is also a place for predators to ambush the sheep from. And so you want to bring the sheep to a good place. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. When we think about a righteous path, we think about morals. That's what our mind first goes to. But in paths of righteousness is the paths where the scorpions are not going to be there. The shepherd has already cleared the path and made sure the path is clear of typical things that harm the sheep before he takes the sheep through it. And that reminds me again, on the green pastures part, the shepherd also has to remove certain weeds that cause belly bloats in the sheep so that they would get sick and uh, fall over and, and die. The sheep are pretty helpless if they get that. 
and and then they'll just go four legs up and they can't get back on their feet and they're dead. And so they're they're a very fragile animal compared to cows, for example. Um, and even compared to goats, um, sheep are pretty pretty amazingly fragile. Uh, if they eat the wrong thing, they're done. And so the shepherd goes through and picks those things out of the grass before taking the sheep through there. Uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is summer now. What does that mean? The valley of the shadow okay. of death. The wadis are drying up. And we're going to have to pick a wadi, and we're going to have to get up on the high plateau if we're going to find food. This is the riskiest time in the life of a sheep, in the, in the year cycle. Because in order to move from the foothills to the high plains, they've got to go up these narrow wadis where the mountain lions live. A wadi, just for clarification, is just the ridge a ravine, of a, 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 a ravine. ravine. Yeah. Think about, like in the American Southwest, we have these arroyos. Yeah. Same thing. Wow. This reads completely different if you read it as if you are a sheep. Yeah. And so this shadow, the valley of the shadow of death is when you're transitioning from low ground to high ground and you're moving through those ambush points where the mountain lions like to ambush the sheep. The shepherd's got to be on his game there. And it's yeah. it's not accidental that when David is a lad talking to Saul, says, I killed a lion and a bear with my weapons to protect the sheep. This would be the time when the shepherd might need to do that. In mm -hmm. verse four, this oh is God. when the sheep are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That's on every hand. If they don't move, they die because the grass yeah. is running out down here. Yeah. If they move the wrong way, they die because the the, the shepherd, or if they move with a bad shepherd, they die because nobody cleared the path for them. Nobody took care of the predators. Nobody picked the best path. So there's really a valley of shadow of death all around this transition from the low plains to the high plains. Yeah. I will fear no evil for you are with me. This is the role of the shepherd doing what's needed for the sheep. Your rod and, they, and your staff, they comfort me. Now this thing here, rod and staff gets interpreted a lot of different ways. I've heard people say, well, that's the discipline for the sheep. No, this is not a discipline for the sheep. The rod and the staff do two different things. One of them has a crook on the end and it'll rescue a sheep if they fall off the cliff. It just hooks around them and you pull them back up. If they get unsteady, you help <sighs> like, them up. This is a- Like little Bo Peep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The other one's a club for fighting off the enemies to the sheep. So you have a defensive weapon and you have a tool to rescue down sheep. Both are necessary as you move through here. And so the sheep takes comfort that the shepherd is going to protect the sheep. If something bad happens, he's going to help me back up on my feet. And secondly, yeah. if an enemy comes, he's going to club the enemy. And yeah. that next part is where we all think we're going to out to Sunday part. dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the table is prepared before me. I'm at the Sunday dinner. I'm at the big smorgasbord. This is the this is a word, the table. We use it too in English. In in various geology type uh, situations, we talk about water tables, right? And we talk right. about things called plateaus, a table land. 
a land that's shaped like the table. It's higher than the other land. And up here, the amazing thing about table land is that it's up higher in the clouds. And in Israel especially, and some other places that have mountains not too far from the sea, when the clouds come over on that low ground, they're not dropping water in the summer. That's why it's dry in the summer. When they get up over the tableland, something about that interaction causes rain to happen. And now there's green grass up there. So once the sheep gets up to the top of the plateau, that's the tableland, you have prepared it before me. And this is also referring to the shepherd going along and plucking out that weed that's going to kill the sheep. And so the shepherd actively has to prepare the tableland for the sheep to pasture every year. And then the sheep goes out and, and eats prepared grass on the tableland. In the presence of my enemies, the lion's looking. They pass through those places, but the lions are still lurking. They're, they're watching. Uh, the lion knows that these sheep are helpless on their own. And there's other predators too, but the predators are there. And the sheep are still grazing fine because the shepherd's there. Yeah. You anoint my head with oil. That's where I was joking earlier about the whole cup of oil dumped on us. But actually, this is the this is the thing that protects the sheep from insects, burrowing insects that get into the skin and the fur and give them horrid uh, skin issues. And this is the time of the year when they need it. Think about animals on the farm. We might do something called a flea and a tick dip, dip our dog, dip cattle, whatever, into this stuff to keep insects off of them in the summer. But here's the ancient method, oil, and it takes a lot of it. Oh my gosh. So even the irritating amazing. little things that can creep into our lives and get ourselves all in a mess can be anointed so that they don't hurt us. That's yeah. That's the sheep getting anointed for the summer hazards with the insects. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To go back down the hill to the barn lot for the winter. That is so beautiful. You kept reading lines, and I was looking ahead. I'm like, there's no way we're still talking about the sheep. And then you would tie it back with the fact I didn't know. That is, wow, I feel like, like the depth of that verse just doubled. So this is so amazing. Oh my gosh. I feel like the more we learn about the Bible, just the more layers we discover. And when we think about this, this is a line by line, item by item, all year long, God taking care of us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I can't thank you enough for providing all of this insight and all of this wisdom and sharing all of your knowledge. I, I feel like this is deepening a lot of the, the Bible for me personally. And um, I, I feel like this is going to be one of the longest podcasts we have because you could do this for every single line of the Bible. And this just adds so much more enrichment. So I, you know, maybe one day we'll have another two hour episode of just a couple of different books. I mean, there's just endless things we could talk about, even not just the Bible, but before the Bible and how it applies today. And um, just for the sake of time, we'll have to close. But I would sure. love to have you back on this podcast so we can keep talking about this because this is so enriching. And that's the best word I can put it as. 
Sometime I'd like to, not this time, but another time maybe, I'd like to talk about the, the lady who reaches for the hem of Jesus's garment. There's yes. a lot in there that we don't catch when we read Matthew or Luke. Okay. Well, I'll see you back on here very soon then for us to talk about that woman. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, I always like to give uh, my guests an opportunity to plug anything. Do you, it, it, this is your chance to talk about maybe any of your studies, any of your projects, anything for people to look out if you're about to release any white papers, anything you want to plug now? Well, I can maybe put a small plug in for my, my recent book. Uh, oh, wow. This is... This is uh, published in Peter Lang, publisher, uh, in the Studies in Biblical Greek section. And in, in this book, I, uh, I was interacting with three scholars mainly, but also other scholars that had uh, some input on the topic uh, on what a Greek perfect tense really means. And in here, I challenged the linguistic assumptions of three prominent linguists in their understanding of the Greek perfect tense. Uh, and I, I implemented some devices in linguistics to show why the Greek perfect tense means what it does from a linguistic framework. And I showed seven different ways that it works, like they're parallel things. They're not dependent on each other. It's seven different avenues where we can think about what a perfect tense means, seven different ways of illustrating it or giving an example. This book wow. would be what I call very dense in terms of its linguistic jargon um, so uh, it would be a difficult read uh, for anyone not acquainted with some of the, the linguistic debates over a greek perfect tense but it it's an uh if you enter that field reading it uh reading about the linguistic arguments for what a greek perfect tense means and why uh in in books like this you, you get a new book in that really deals with the a topic like this about every 10 years. So this would be the, the, the most recent one dealing with uh, issues around the perfect tense. Most of my papers that have been uh, published uh, are dealing with similar concerns. So I've not published anything yet in, that is general, that is general New Testament or Hebrew Bible related. That's fascinating. Well, again, we're going to have to meet again. I'm, I'm sure. just telling you that right now. I need more of your time, doctor, and I, I can't appreciate enough of this all, all this time. So thank you for sharing. Um, if you can send me a link to that book and I can share it when I post this, um, I want yeah, people sure. to know about resources and accessing you. But again, thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate your time, doctor. Thank you, Cassie. And it's been a wonderful conversation. I have I've right. enjoyed our time together very much. Me too. Well, we'll speak soon. Thank you.